Hey guys, how's it going? How's your week going thus far? Welcome back to Tell Me About It with Jade Iovine. I'm Jade Iovine, and Tell Me About It is the place where we get very real and commiserate about the many bloopers of our very imperfect lives and remind each other that even the women we think are perfect also have lives that are far from. So last week I went to the doctor and I went for reasons other than family planning initially. But my doctor asked me while I was there, like while we're up there checking out all your goods, do you want us to also get an egg count and see you know, how your follicles are and then you can give a blood sample to test your AMH levels. I didn't know what AMH levels were either. Basically, they're like the health of your follicles. I'm butchering it, Google it. It's part of fertility, I don't really know. At first, I was confused as to why she was asking a child this question. But then I remembered that I'm 27 fucking years old and of childbearing age, I guess, <laughs> in some worlds. I'm not ready to, mom, please don't get excited by listening to this, but it sounded appealing to me to kind of see where I was at and see what precautions I needed to take, if any, you know, before I actually start planning to have a family. At first, I was really scared to find out this information, I will admit. Like, it was scary to me that, like, if the levels were low or if something was abnormal, I was scared, like, that I would spiral and I would obsess about it for too long. But when I actually did get the information and I learned about what's going on in my body, I didn't feel scared. I felt super empowered. Like, I really feel like information is power in this situation. I was just so excited to have a baseline for where I was right now that we can reference when I do plan to have kids. And I know these doctors are so expensive and a lot of people don't have access to them. But if you do have access to an OBGYN and are thinking of having kids one day, I can't recommend it enough. Like, do it as early as possible. I just think the more time in advance you have to plan and work around the things that may prohibit you from having a kid, the better. Anyway, I digress, but back to why you came. My guest this week is Lorea Gaston. If you want to meet a real-life Earth angel, Lorea is one. She's a jack-of-all-trades and is constantly giving of herself, but the through-line of her career is this bounty of love and peace that she radiates and brings to all situations, even a podcast recording. It only takes about two minutes of listening to this woman to realize how badly we need her advice and what a better place the world would be if there were more people like her. Her book, Love Without Reason, The Lost Art of Giving a Fuck, is filled with actionable items to manifest love in your life, even if you've never seen what love looks like before. I read a lot of self-help books, and I feel like most of them tell you what to do but not how to do it, and Lorea's book is totally different. It tells you exactly how to do it. We talked about the link between managing depression and being of service, breaking chains from childhood trauma, how Lorea's mother's death affected her work, the importance of allowing yourself to fall apart. We also talked about forgiveness and how we can show up more for our communities in real life. Lorea actually spent 43 days on Skid Row, and she says that that saved her life, which I find beyond, beyond fascinating. I could have just talked to her about those 43 days the whole time, honestly. Lorea is a visionary, and after talking to her, I'm so fucking inspired because this woman really walks the walk, and I know for sure she said something in this interview that will deeply resonate with you. Here's a little about Lorea. Lorea Gaston is an activist, documentary filmmaker, and founder of the nonprofit Lunch on Me, an organization dedicated to ending starvation while providing opportunities to enrich the mind, body, and spirit of LA and New York's homeless communities. 
Lunch on Me feeds and serves over 10,000 unhoused individuals and families on a monthly basis. Larea is shifting how we address the issues of homelessness and hunger in America through nourishment and self-care. Her latest initiative is Larea's Bodega. It's so cool. It's the first organic 99 cent store, basically. They're using it to create healthy food access for all, and they actually redirect food waste and provide healthy meals to the homeless community on Skid Row and other parts of LA and New York. Okay, let's get to it. Here is Larea Gaston. Hi, Larea. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. I have six pages of questions for you. Like, I'm so excited <laughs> for this interview. Like, there's so much that you do, and there's so much I want to talk to you about. So we'll skip a lot of the small talk and jump right in. Can you kind mm-hmm. of tell people where you're from and what do you do? What are all the many pots you have your hands in? Well, I mean, the first thing I think of is artists, radical philanthropists. You know, I'm really focused on social good and art. I feel like art is the way we communicate from heaven. So Absolutely. that's kind of my collaboration between art creation and activism. I'm, you know, I'm in Los Angeles. I just recently came to Atlanta to be able to develop our program. So I'm kind of all over the place in the U.S., just trying to get our programs up and going in different corners. And so that's what brought me here. Um, But I started a program called Lunch on Me, Mm -hmm. and we focus on holistic healing and plant-based foods for the homeless, foster youth, LGBT youth, anyone that's displaced that doesn't have access. We want to make sure that everyone gets quality of life. And that's what what we're fighting for. Mm-hmm. When did you start that? How many years ago? Two th- the end of 2016 is when I first started so Lunch on Me. Ago. Yeah, I've been serving the the homeless community for over 10 years prior to that. Wow. So can you tell me how you got started? In, like, where did you get this idea? How did it come to fruition? It wasn't really an idea that I had, to be honest. I had The first time I'd ever given someone food that was experiencing homelessness, I was 14 years old. Wow. And I was taking food to throw away perfectly good food from my uncle's restaurant. And there was a man outside digging in the trash can. Mm -hmm. And I felt like it was just this really fleeting but divine moment that happened where I could meet a need right in front of me. And I think the gift was the fact of my awareness at the moment. And that was the first time that I realized, like, it's not that hard to help people. We just got to know where to look. And I think that I look in the small places and, and and especially with the homeless community being so young, there wasn't that fear that was instilled. There wasn't those things because there was never that conversation. You know, at the time, it was just, I knew it was another human being. I think that the younger we are, the more open we are to those Absolutely. things. And so I think it it was right at the right time, right before I actually um, started to have the ideas or understand how other people thought about this community specifically. Absolutely. Where were you living at the time when you were 14? Arizona. Where my grandmother who raised me was at at the time. So you're kind of saying that your grandmother never instilled any fear of homeless people in you. And you kind of had this open mindset of a child where you were just like, I I see someone hungry. I have extra food. This is easy. Yeah, I think that her teaching normalized circumstances. I think that she had so much grace and empathy for everyone. Mm. And she wasn't a judgmental person. You know, mm-hmm. she allowed yeah. people to show who they were. And I think she gave that space no matter who you were and where you've been. And I definitely, I think I inherit that just by being around that type of person. Yeah, because I was going to say, you know, where do you, where does that empathy come from? Like where, 
did that originate? And like that would make sense if your grandma was a no judgment kind of woman that it, that would get passed on to you. Right? Yeah, I think it's a resonance. I think that everything that is planted within us starts with the resonance, a vibration. And I think that I inherited that vibration. That was the one I gravitate towards. I think that a lot of times the, the, the vibrations that other people have, um, whatever's in you will be drawn to those things. And I was, and I was drawn to the light because that's what I was. I've always been right. that. Okay, there's so much I want to ask you about regarding Lunch on Me and like your book and everything, but let's start at the beginning. So when you were, what were you doing before Lunch on Me? Art, acting, modeling, entertainment. I was in the entertainment industry. That's all I knew was that, and just art creating. Um, I had a fashion brand. Just, yeah, entertainment. I never thought about the nonprofit world. It wasn't a part of my world in that way. You know, it was always something I did to help. But right. I never looked at it as a part of me. Right. And who were you before you made that transition? Like before you decided, okay, I'm going to give my life to service. You know, who, what's the, what are the main differences between you five years ago and you now? Well, I think that I didn't, I, I just separated all of them. I compartmentalized. I am an artist. I'm an entertainer, but I love to help people. I didn't see them as a collaboration because I didn't know anyone that did the things that I do. So there was no point of reference. There wasn't that space where people were really doing both. So I was serving quietly the entire time. The only difference is I didn't know that was so connected to my purpose. I knew that was connected to my heart. I didn't know it was connected to my purpose because my purpose had always been my art. You know, mm. anything I did when it came to creation is, I think that's how people assigned me. You're gifted in this space. So therefore you think that that's your purpose because that's where your gifts are. And I didn't realize that they were all collaborating together. They all worked together. I didn't, I didn't know that. So five years ago, I, I think that's when I was having my aha moments mm -hmm. because I realized like, okay, I love this. <laughs> I've always done this. So I love this. But I think there was a moment that I realized other people love it. And I realized that I could have an influence on people who want to do good and, and to normalize the idea of doing good. Yes. So was it like a... Was it an aha moment as you described it? Or was it kind of like, did you have a breakthrough because of something that went wrong in your life? Like what forced that change? I think it was a series of events. I don't think it was just one. One of the things that happened was I had went to volunteer at an organization because I wanted to do more. In my mind, I was, I was just serving the way I knew how. So I went to the nonprofit world thinking they were doing so much more than me. So in my mind, it was like, these are like the good people. These are the people that really do wonderful work in the world. And when I was exposed to the nonprofit world, I was disheartened by what I had seen and what I experienced. I realized it wasn't that. I realized it was just another business. And I was really heartbroken by that because my heart was so invested in that space. And so through my radical uh, emotions of feeling hurt for the community because I had seen such a, a separation between the two worlds, you know, I had seen even in the nonprofit world, people tend to look at these communities as less than, and it's obvious in how they show up and how they interact with them. And so during that moment, I was just like, I'm going to do something myself because I know how to love people. I don't know much about the nonprofit world. I don't even care to, I have no, I have no even interest in that space. I want to love people. I want to show up for people. I want to give people access. And it's not about an infrastructure. I don't even care about that because the infrastructure isn't, isn't the impact. It's the people behind it. 
and the force that comes from their heart. So that was one space that I knew. I knew how to mm-hmm. love people. And I knew that was my superpower because I was in spaces where these were considered the most loving, given human beings. And I didn't even see it. And I knew what I had was something they hadn't even inherited. And so it was radical. It was like, I'm going to. And honestly, it was a moment where I'm crying. I'm serving food. And I'm just like, I love people. And lunch on me. I'm buying everyone lunch. And that was literally, oh, that that. Was literally what I said because I was so hurt because I wanted to help Mm -hmm. and show up Mm -hmm. in a different way. And so that was one of the things that uh, definitely pushed me to say like, okay, that's where Lunch On Me came from. And my first event, I thought I would have 20 people show up and I had over 120 people show up to volunteer. And that the, the first event, we fed 500 people that day. And that was the first time I had recognized not only did I tap into the need of the community because I long knew that need. I knew that like there is no difference between me and the man who's homeless on the street. And so I knew that, but what I didn't know was there were more humans like me Mm. that longed to do good, that there were people who were, who wanted to be good humans and conduits of good. So that's what I learned more of the need of other people to want to be that and rise up, but they had to have a place to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's incredible because you're right. There are a bunch of nonprofits out there, but if you know, a lot of them take government funding and then are therefore controlled by the government. And you don't like Lunch on Me doesn't take government funding, right? No, I just I feel like everyone has their mission in space. And I I never want to talk bad about other people's infrastructure. Everyone's mm-hmm. is different. But for me, for me personally, the things that we're doing are so radical and haven't been done. I don't think I could do it in, in old ways and old systems. Mm. The things that what's requiring change is newness. And I think that we're a part of the newness, not the old systems. Those don't work for me. They've never worked for me. So I don't collaborate in places I don't find innovation. Right. So how old were you when you started that? So five years ago, you're 33 now. Yeah. I mean, yeah, well, my math is terrible. No, mine is worse. That's why I'm literally not answering that question. Yeah. Honestly, like when we started at Lunch With Me, I want to say I was 25, 26 is when we decided like, okay, this is what we're going to do around that. So it's been like seven years now. So that takes a lot of confidence to start something from the ground up at 25, 26. Where did that come from for you? I'm an artist. I think I've always had to create everything from nothing. So I think that it just, I think that it came from my bones. Like that's what I've done in every area of my life. It doesn't matter what it is. I think that there aren't many places that art doesn't touch or reach. And I wasn't intimidated by the task at hand because I just knew it required vision and I knew I had that. So I, I was more confident in staying plugged in to my vision and seeing it out. I knew, I knew how to be disciplined. I knew how to do all the other things. I'm so disciplined as a person. So I don't think there was much that could stop me, but me. Right. And I'll never get in my way. (laughs) Amen. I love that. (laughs) So when you were 25, what do you remember being insecure about? I don't think I was afraid of things. I think that I didn't have resources. Mm -hmm. So I always knew I had to fight, fight to have a seat at the table. To do what I've done has required me to be um, unhumanly. Mm -hmm. And I've known that. So I didn't feel afraid or insecure. I just didn't know. I just knew in order for me to be blessed, there had to be a supernatural force to do it because nothing, nothing was given to me. So I knew I had to collaborate with God, the universe, whatever you'll have it 
in order to proceed. I knew that I couldn't do it alone and that I needed that. So I think that more than anything, I really took a leap of faith. Like I just believe in like trusting that if you jump, something will catch you. Yes. So you've done so much since then. You guys served 10,000 meals, is it a month? Yeah, a month, yeah. Unbelievable. Can you tell us a little about your book? Yeah, well, I wrote I wrote uh, Love Without Reason, The Lost Art of Giving a Fuck. Sorry, can I curse here? I don't know if yeah, that's okay. Yeah, hell yeah. Yes, okay. we I encourage like cursing. That up. I like yes. how you follow that up with a cursor. <laughs> the Lost Art of Giving a Fuck, because I just feel like we're going off the tracks. I feel like as a society, we are liberating, not caring. And there's just this separation that it's cool. You know, this this cancel culture, this this space to not show up. And I think that we have it wrong. Yes. That does not resonate to me. And I don't think it's sustainable for us. And I just felt it was important to, to create a self-help book that was about showing up for a world that tells you it's not even worth the trouble, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't believe that. I believe that showing up is exactly what we should all be doing for us, ourselves individually, and for our collective. And I felt like a lot of times, you know, there's so much spiritual jargon. There's so many quotes, but I don't think that people can hold them and understand them without tangible, actionable things. You have to know how to implement change in your day. And I don't think it's one grand moment, but it's what you do collectively, day by day, minute by minute. And so I wrote this this book, this, this nudge to get us on track in how we're showing up for the world daily. Mm-hmm. I really love that you include so many statistics and even like examples of micro gestures that you can, you know, actionable items that you can actually do because you're right. So much of self-help books leave you kind of like without a paddle. You're just like, okay, I have all this information, but I I have no idea how to do it. And what I love like most that I've seen in your book that you say is that you weren't fed love with a silver spoon. So you were licking it off knives. Yeah, it's just you work with what you have. And that's the thing. A lot of times we think about change and growth is, you know, one day I'll help the homeless community when I'm rich or when I'm older or retired. It's just like all these ideas of what could happen outside of where we are now. And I just feel like we have to learn how to work with what we have, whatever that is. Impact isn't measured off of what you have. It's what you're doing with it. And that's what I wanted people to understand is I work with what I've had in every stage of my life. So, and I knew how to work with nothing. What was your childhood like as far as love and what was your upbringing like? I learned love in a lot of different places, but I think the most, the two most important spaces I learned love was through my grandmother and my birth mother. They were the biggest gift to me on both ends because my grandmother showed me what love could be when it comes from an infinite place. And my birth mother showed me what love isn't when you're pulling from a scarce place. And so I seen both, you know, and I decided where I wanted to sit and, and did I want to contribute to love from an infinite abundant place or from a scarce place? Mm -hmm. And there was nothing but destruction and corrosion that comes from that. And, you know, as much as it was tough, it was painful. I think the duality was necessary because I needed a point of reference So both were big gifts to me. Absolutely. But it speaks to such a big issue, I think, with a lot of people that we feel like, okay, if I have no love in me, I wasn't taught love, I was raised with neglect or abuse or whatever. Like if you feel like your well is empty, 
you know, a lot of people are like, well, that's it. I just didn't get love. I don't know how to give it. How did you like start the process of building love inside you when you came from a scarcity standpoint before? Yeah, I I believe it's you have to take your life into your hands. I think a lot of times we just allow and accept what is and we don't curate what experience we want. I wanted more love in my life. So I became that. I got out of life what I put into it. Right. And so I think that's the difference. I think that people wish for things. I wasn't wishing for anything. I was working towards something. Mm-hmm. I'm not a wishful person. I'm a worker. I'm a show up. Yes. And I didn't need, I didn't need to be loved to know that that's what I wanted. And I knew if surely if I, if I, if I gave it, I would, I would stumble across it. Right. So you come from a place where service and giving of yourself is really an extremely powerful and efficient way to find self-love. You know, you don't have to cross one bridge to get to the next. You know, you don't have to find self-love, which is obviously a constantly evolving idea throughout your life, but you don't have to find self-love to give of yourself. And in fact, kind of working in the opposite direction might be more beneficial, right? I think that what has to happen is once you're no longer a victim of whatever your circumstances, I don't think we can do anything from a victim mentality. And yes, hard things happen to me. Yes, I went through so much. Yes, I am a survivor of many things, but what I've learned is I'm not a victim. And I think that's what I held. And I think that's where the empowerment component comes in. Mm -hmm. If you recognize like things don't happen to you, they happen for you. Mm -hmm. If you can get to that space of there's something in this, even these tough lessons, these tough lessons are not for me to be a victim and and to just be hurt by them and wounded, but to grow, learn and, and know what's in front of me. I think the biggest spiritual understanding is to recognize what's in front of you. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people are clouded by that because they're too victimized to stand in their power. You don't have to have a lot of power. You just have to have will. Mm. When did you learn that lesson about, you know, not being a victim and taking power over those things that have happened to you? I was probably like 12, 13. Really? When I started to recognize, when I started to make sense of of life, for sure. And I think I started to look at the details and I started to pay attention. And I think that it's, it's innate. I think it's so spiritually innate. You know, you tap into, you know, the places you've been. And I don't think it's just this one rodeo. You know, so absolutely. I definitely feel like I've always tapped into a greater space and I've pulled from there and it made more sense to me than anything. That energy, that force makes more sense to me than things that are in front of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I love that you say that people with depression, you often tell them to get out there and serve. As someone who struggles with depression, I'm like, I, I love that piece of advice. Yeah. Well, I think that the first thing that comes with uh, depression, obviously there's the victimization space of like, we have to learn how to turn that into empowerment. But I think depression is stems from lack of connection. Mm-hmm. And I think that you have to learn to be connected to that energetic field and source. And that's why service is so important because that's some of the highest vibration and frequency I've seen on this planet. And I believe that just that, you know, you inherit gratitude through service. It's a byproduct of service. I don't think that you can take yourself out of depression by writing about it in a journal. I think you have to get out in the world and connect with souls because that's where our joy comes from, our connection to each other. 
And I 100% depression comes from a lack of connection. When you are connected, when you find your tribe, when you find people who sing from the same place as you. Mm-hmm. And when you learn to do good work in this world from that space with your collective, depression can't live there. Right. God, that's amazing. Because it's so true. And like these tools are right there. But why are we so afraid to connect with other people? Where do you think that disconnect originated? Like, first of all, we're so disconnected from our own selves and bodies mm-hmm. that it's even hard to see outside of just right, you know, in front of us. Yeah, I think it's society. I think society uh, supports our separateness. And I think that's the difference is we have to get to a place to recognize what has been placed on us and what are our beliefs? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of things we normalize through, oh, that's just the way it is. No, like we can decide that. And I think that's the authority we have to take. Um, of course, it starts from that. The things I'm talking about are superhuman because society doesn't support the space I'm talking about. It supports the complete opposite to be separate, to be fear-based, to be all these things. And it's one of those things I understand it, but I don't accept it. Mm-hmm. So you have to decide, are you going to accept it and fall into, into line with every other person who, who thinks from that space? Or are you going to say, no, it can be better. And I can contribute to that. I can be better. I don't want to live like this. It's like, sometimes you have to look at depression and say, do I really want to be sad when the trees are still swaying and flowers are still blooming? Do I really want to sit in that space? Am I creating a dark world in my mind? Yeah. And you're so right, like, especially after COVID, and I think, you know, it's a symptom of depression. People come from such a scarcity standpoint. You know, we're so lonely right now. We're so separated. And, you know, I wonder, like, have you seen a big change in the amount people give since COVID? Like, do you think they give less or more? They give more. I think that that a lot of humans sometimes have to hit their heads to recognize certain things. You know, if you don't have vision— to look at things beyond your circumstance. And sometimes your world has to come crashing down. I will say I've seen more people empathetic than ever. Mm. And I think that they've also learned to value our lives differently. Like life has always been fragile. COVID maybe showed people who are living in a false space, but life life has never not been fragile. And I think that we have to treat it like it's sacred. We have to treat it like being able to to spend time together, to, to, to do things. It's a blessing. All those things are blessings. And I think that we've completely lost sight of that. Yeah. Cause I wondered, you know, like we were talking about natural disasters here in LA a little earlier, like with the fires and everything, you know, you just saw so many people displaced and like, while they could probably afford to rebuild, they probably got like a perspective of what it feels like that, like, Natural disasters can take things away from you just as quickly as, you know, losing your job or whatever. Yeah, nothing nothing will keep you from universal lessons if that's in your cards. Right. And I think that's the difficult part is like to be able to lose everything, to be able to rebuild it. But imagine to have never had anything and then people judge you for it. Yes. You know, to be in a space where it's like you're already devastated, you know, you're already devastated that you have nothing and that no one is, is kind enough to share what they have, you know? And then, and I, and I always tell people, it's like, people don't realize, you know, we talk about third world countries. We talk about us being in a first world. I will tell you where we are now. It is harder to be poor in America than it is a third world country. Mm -hmm. And it's because people judge you. You see so much help and yet it's isolating. 
The difference is where everyone's poor, there's community. They come together and hold each other, you know? Yeah, yes. So we yes. think that, oh, America, there's so much. Pr-. No, it's it's more lonely and isolating to be poor here. Absolutely. Like in Brentwood, for example, one of the most affluent neighborhoods in L.A., by the Veterans Center on San Vicente, there are just endless amounts of tents. It is a sea of tents that is only growing. And it's very obvious and blatant what happened there. You know, they're at the Veterans Center. They That means they went to war for our country. They fought for our country. And we just fucked them up so much psychologically to make them able to go into war. And then they come home and we say, oh, sorry, screw you. Here's a tent by the freeway. Here's a tent on the street for you to live in. There are no rehabilitation services. The things that we have, how good of people can we be if we aren't sharing? So I know a large part of your inspiration came from the tradition of tithing in the Christian church. Can you explain what that is for people that don't know? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in the church and mm-hmm. tithing is if you grew up in a Christian church, 10% of anything that you have, it belongs to another source. Whether you're tithing in church, whether you're giving it to other people, it's just knowing that everything is yours. Mm-hmm. And it's such, I mean, to me, that was the biggest gift I learned in church because I learned a long time ago that sharing is, it's, it's the minimum that we can do. It's the min- it's the bare minimum. It's to the point where it shouldn't be celebrated because if you are any part good as a human being, then why would that be celebrated, your goodness? Right. Why couldn't you just be good because it's the right thing to do? Right. Do you kind of feel like, uh, this is kind of random and this is not a question I had prepared before, but <laughs> yeah. it, you, you're someone I want to talk to about, virtue signaling. Do you feel like there's some performative aspects when people post on Instagram and there is that celebration of like, oh, look, I'm doing good. I'm doing my part when they're like probably doing nothing in real life. Yeah, I think that everyone is at a different place. Right. And I think I have a lot of grace in that space because I'd rather see someone do something than the people who couldn't do nothing. You know, uh, often the people who are judging are doing nothing. Mm-hmm. So the people who are usually doing have more grace because it's like it's it, at least it's a start. Yes. Do I think that there's a lot of conditions in the heart that we really have to look at? Of course. Do I think a lot of people do things with other intentions? Yes. But I feel that it's not my place to judge them. I think that life life will bring the lessons that they need for perspective. But I feel like that's not my space. You know, of course, I see it. Um, I see it all the time. And I just, I, I just tell people, you know, I mean, when I see it in our space, I definitely remind them, this mm-hmm. is not what we're here for. Um, but I'm still gracious in it because I don't, I feel like if I want them to change, then I have to yeah. show them different. And then at least they're showing up. Right. Most of the world isn't showing up and they think they're doing good or they're judging and they haven't even, they, people will critique how you do things from their living room totally, and have never left their home to even. So at least when I see someone trying to show up, it's a start. We got to start somewhere. We're going to get it right. We're going to get it wrong, but there's some, that's something I can work with. At least someone's trying. I love that. I totally agree. So getting back to love, because I just love your stance on love. You know, you talk about love being not only a verb, which I think is so powerful, but it's a discipline. Can you explain that? Yeah. I think that I, when I look at love and I look at people who love well, 
I think it's like anything else. Anything you want to master, you have to practice. I don't think it's something you inherit in your mind. I think anything we want to do, that's why we go to we schooling. That's why we work out. It has to be a consistent thing to get in shape. I think that love is the same way. We have to practice it to be good at it. And I think that so many people come from the space of, in their mind, I'm a loving person. Where is this coming from? <laughs> like, is it yes. from an example? Is it from your practice? Is it, show, is it from your intention? Because I don't think people are intentional in their love. I don't think they curate. I think that love has been such a thing that people can't always grasp. You know, some people are lucky enough to stumble across it and it hits them and it shifts them. And that becomes, you know, uh, their understanding. But so many people are lost by it. It's the most spoken about subject in the universe. You know, Mm -hmm. nothing is is more written about or there's no topic that's more spoken about about created from than love. I practice love every day. I do think it's a discipline. And when I say practice, I, I, I mean it from a place of curation. I'm intentional. I go into environments and spaces with the intention to be loving to the people in the room, to be vulnerable, to be open, um, to do good, to serve others. Yes. I, I, I walk in that space more often than not. And that is my discipline. And I think that that's why I've been able to speak about it because I've been very disciplined in love for a very long time. Right. So it's a muscle that you exercise actively every All, single daily, day. Daily. And I think it's the awareness of minutes. Like I go into spaces thinking, how can I add more love here? Mm. You know, cause it's like in order for people to encounter love, they have to encounter you. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, it's always an encountering. A person has to carry that. Yeah. But it's so cool and so pertinent to the times that we're in because especially through this podcast, I'm just learning that, you know, whether it's big T or little T, we are all traumatized, you know, in some way. There's so much trauma. And a lot of the conversations I have with my friends are about, like, how we're going to break certain chains, you know? And so much of that is inventing love where you didn't have it, where you've never seen it before. And so I think it's so cool that, like, you know, you're theoretically giving from an empty well at first, and it slowly starts to fill, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that's just with anything. Anything you want to do, if you want more of it, like you have to give it. And I will tell you, like there's, there. I've learned it's when I show up with love, I'm setting the tone for my dynamic with any person I encounter, you know? And there's different levels of love. Sometimes it's, it's nurturant. Sometimes it's tough love. Sometimes it's honesty. I think love is so many different things. And I think we have to start with, with, with two things when we're trying to go into that space. You always, I always tell people, make a list of what love has been to them. Mm-hmm. That's the first list. You write out what love has been to you. And then- Like the, what? Like what is, what's an example? Your, an example of what love's been to you is naming people in your life and who they've been and how you've seen love from them you know, what love has been to you, whether it's romantic, platonic, friendship, family. And then my second list is always, what do I want love to mean to me? Okay. And that's, it's an actionable way to move from a lot of us. We allow our experience to dictate how we show up in love. Right. And I think that's a passive, a passive approach. I think that we have to be deliberate and Mm -hmm. intentional. And I think that's the part about curation. When I say that, it's the intention of, Love has been this to me, but I don't want it to be that. I want love to be forgiving, non-judgmental, kind, open, service-oriented. So that's what I am. I embody that. 
but I have to start with being able to define it. So many people talk about it because they haven't figured out how to define it. And most people's definition is what it's been to them. And that's not good enough because I mean, love has been very confusing for a lot of people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, that's a great place to take a quick break and we'll be right back. So you're such an evolved person. I love your outlook on life and just the sense of peace that you like radiate, even just knowing you for 20, (laughs) 30 minutes. Like, I just feel like you have this inner peace that's enviable, you know? So, so many of my questions, I'm like, oh God, like, you know, she's so evolved. (laughs) She's probably already thought about this already. But do you like, okay, this is kind of maybe a more vapid question, but does someone as evolved and self-reflective as you compare yourself to people on things like Instagram or to other women in your life? Oh Lord. Um, (laughs) no, I will say I don't because I think that our differences, our uniqueness, I think that's how we contribute to this world. Mm -hmm. I don't think that we need to be the same. I think that we always need to seek common ground with one another, but I don't know comparison. I feel like that is we can nitpick ourselves into a spiral. I don't think that contributes to good health. Mm, no, it does I don't not. Think it, I don't think it contributes to, I think that I focus more on celebrating who I am and where I want to go and become yeah. than where mm-hmm. other people are. I don't, I will say I live in a bubble in that space because I'm more focused on how can I be better. So you're not looking to the left and right of you. You're like, no one has the gift or vision that I have. So we all are called for many different things, you know? So I don't, I don't think that we need to be the same. I think that we need to contribute our different gifts. I love people who are very different than me in the context of like what they contribute to this world. I think that's what makes it beautiful. And I, and I think that if we could come from that space, of course, like, Growing up, I loved Mother Teresa. That was like my lady. Like as a child, oh, I, mean, I, I love loved that. her before I even understood what made me love her so much. It was her vibration. It was a resonance that I just literally was drawn to. Yes, so, as a child. Yeah. And there's people that I, of course, admire that I think are absolutely wonderful and have shown me such, you know, great things. But comparison, quote, like that is, I don't think that contributes to our evolution either because it kind of distracts us. Totally. They say like horses have blinders on because like if they look to the left and right of them, they'll miss a step and lose the race. You know? Absolutely. I think that my mind or the way it at least it operates, it comes from the space of how do I tap in? How do I show up? I'm not thinking about everyone else and what they're doing. I just I I, I like to really like how we have disciplines. I like to also keep my mind in healthy spaces. Yes. And that's intentional as well, because I, I think that if I thought like the majority of the world, I think I would also emotionally, energetically sit in the same space as them. And I think that as a collective, so many people are suffering. So I try not to take on those habits or normalize them. No, you because you're going to be as depressed as the rest of us. <laughs> you know, like, just, clearly, we don't have it figured out. <laughs> <laughs> clearly, we're doing something wrong. <laughs> so what what is something that can hurt your confidence still to this day? And how do you kind of cope with that? I think that what's difficult for me is when I'm misunderstood mm-hmm. because I think that's anyone, right? Like yes. I do want to be under, understood and I've worked so hard to be so transparent and vulnerable. It's kind of being misunderstood. feels like you're in a cage. 
Yeah, you they know? say that the number one elicitor of shame is um, unwanted identity. So like being misunderstood, like you yeah. said. Yeah, so I, I would say um, I always try to be uh, transparent and understood. And so I, I feel that that place is probably hurtful because I've learned it's more of someone's perception and vision than it could ever be of my transparency. So it's nothing I could do. I'm as clear as a glass of water. Like, right. What you, you see is yeah. what you get, you know? So it's like for, for people I to go that. beyond so for people to go beyond that, I've learned sometimes spiritually they don't know what's in front of them. Right. Right. So do you find yourself over explaining? Like was that ever a symptom of Absolutely. I definitely think that with the people I care deeply for, I a hundred percent over explain myself. And that part is very hurtful because I have to recognize sometimes what's not mine. You right. Know? And that's like a direct trauma response, like just yeah. over explaining and yeah. Yeah. And I, and I can be very apologetic about that space. That's not necessarily my space to be that. And again, we're all a work in, in progress. Amen. Yes. And so that's the space that I, I constantly try and get myself to, um, yeah. you know, be a little more tough in. Yes, absolutely. Me too. How long ago did your mom pass? 2017. Okay. And what was that experience like and how did it manifest itself in your professional life or like your purpose? I mean, that was difficult. So my mother was my grandmother who raised me. Mm -hmm. And the day she passed away, I was, I was um, throwing a party on Skid Row. We were filming a commercial. You had already started in, in the service world. Yeah. 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 We had, yeah, we were, we were actually doing like our first commercial. So we were doing with BuzzFeed and Hyundai. Beautiful day. It was like a tough, like three days. And I was going to see her right after the commercial. I had to be there. So I had to leave for the com- to do the commercial. And she passed away 40 minutes before the party started. And it was so crazy because, I mean, I was on the phone with her when she took her last breath. No And way. they called me because she was taking her last breath. And it was like, 20 minutes before I had to be in the makeup chair <laughs> to get, like, oh I was just my getting my God. makeup done to be, yes. like, to record. And I heard her take her last breath. And it was, it was so crazy because I felt like that, just, like, all the contrast I had seen in life. I had seen life mm-hmm. be dark. I had seen it be light. I'd, I'd always seen the duality. And I think that what made it so crazy was I was listening to her take her last breath, and there were thousands of balloons and flowers around me and music. Wow. And it was just, like, this it was so much joy I had curated, right? There's over a hundred people smiling everywhere. I'm on the phone listening to her take her last breath. And it was so crazy because I grew up very service oriented. So there were a lot of times where I didn't always say all that I felt, but I would Mm. show you, you know, it's like, I I might not be able to always articulate things, but I will show you my love. Mm -hmm. And so it was like one of those difficult moments. I just had this like, download because my aunt was like, say what you want to say to her because she's taking her last breath. And it was the craziest moment. I'm looking, I swear, like the music was going on and it it just, my mind went blank. And I had said to her, I never found God in church, but I found God through your love. And that was what I said to her. And I was like, you can go. Yeah. So I was like, you can go. And so I hear the nurse say she's gone Mm -hmm. and I'm looking around. My hearing's gone. I just like, I'm crying, but like, Everyone around me smiling, like mm. smiling, laughter, happy to the point where it was like, this is the one day I want to like 
crawl into a dark hole and be in a dark place. I was excited about it. I was like, I've ne- I've always had my ish together. So I was like, this is the day I get to fall apart. Like I was excited. Right. I was like, this is the day. And then I had realized in that moment, I had I had been gifted such a thing, such a such a teacher that her life, everything around me was an example of her life. Like that came from that woman's life. And so I was like, I, I was like, I can't be that person. I can't because there's too wow. much beauty around me. And so I had realized that night. And it was, it was, it was a wild day. It was a wild transformation because I I was forced to look at things big picture. Wow. The love, the, the experience, the relationship was too big to look at it from a small place. The fact that you were able to be present in that yeah. moment after experiencing something like that is so incredible. So did that help the following days? Oh, yeah. Like, or like, was, did you allow yourself to fall apart? Mm, it was, no. So that happened. I mean, I'm, I had moments of crying, of course. Like, of I course, mean, falling yeah. apart in the sense of like, I hit the ground. And just, yes, whew. yes. But there was an interesting thing that happened. A couple times I had moments of, of crying. And then in my meditation, she said to me, go to Skid Row. And that was the first time I pitched a tent and I stayed on Skid Row for 43 days in a tent. Wow. And that's because I didn't wow. want to be in a dark place, so I went to serve. Wow. You are blowing my mind because that's like truly the medicine we all need, you know, is to do something yeah. like that. Yeah, it healed me in a way. <laughs> like, yeah, 43 days in a tent on Skid And you Row. grieved with the people on Skid Row. Yeah, I thought I was going there to save them, but I realized they saved me. Like, that oh, was I the interesting it. part. It's like when I went there, I thought I was going there to, to, to give them all I had. Mm. And really, when I tell you they held space for me to the point where, where I left, my heart was completely mended. Wow. And so that was the most wild. It was like a personal pilgrimage. It was my first, I feel like it was my first, uh, I understood when like prophets and monks go places to seek certain things. I felt that that was mine. So you may have heard the term Skid Row thrown around before, but what a lot of people don't realize is Skid Row is an actual place in downtown L.A. It's this 54-block area that has become synonymous with homelessness and poverty. There's up to 8,000 people living there at any time, and it's this unspoken agreement between the authorities, let's say, and the unhoused that that's where they're kind of supposed to be, kind of to separate them from the more touristy and metropolitan areas in L.A., It's pretty fucked up, honestly. Mm -hmm. But I imagine that's just the tip of the iceberg of what it actually is. There's so much complexity and wonderful people. And so you spent 43 days on Skid Row. How would you describe the culture down there? What did it teach you that you didn't know before? One of the things I learned, I mean, I've always known cops were terrible, especially as, as a woman of color. I've always known how terrible cops are and how much I've gone through and people I love have gone through. Mm-hmm. That was my first time seeing cops beat and abuse the homeless community. And it it made me recognize slavery and plantations. It was the exact same thing. It was that level of violence. I saw, you know, it's like first week I saw a cop knock a man's teeth out and laugh while he was screaming. Like the level of just... Inhumanity. It was just, dis- yeah, it was very disheartening because I had recognized, I mean, I'd always known it's an unspoken thing with people of color. We know we're not protected, right. but right. then when you are someone who is of color and then you're poor, you're literally preyed upon. Mm. 
And I had even recognized that as a volunteer, when I would go to Skid Row, the cops were really kind in front of us and it was an act. When I started to look homeless, you know, I wore the same outfit for 43 days. I was an all white in by the end of that, it was my whole outfit was brown. Right. And so when so you I only s- brought the clothes on your back, mm-hmm. it was, that was the craziest <laughs> experience ever. But now when I think about it, I'm just like, whoa, I saw so much pain. I, to see that and to see just kind, tender people just preyed upon, it's just, it's kind of like seeing butterflies slaughtered, you know, yeah, it's like certain absolutely. things that are tender that you just, you just can't imagine your mind doesn't, doesn't allow it just it it seems foreign it's hard to even accept and so there was a lot there was a lot in that space and and that part was painful um and then to get comfort for so many people who who had lost their mothers i felt like i encountered every single person who had lost their mother and they would share their stories and what they what she had been to them and how the world how even down to the love that they've experienced in life left when their mother left you know, just to hear these profound moments of so many people, I, I wasn't alone. I just needed to look, you know, I wasn't the only person in that pain. There were people walking past me. The difference is I was present enough to learn that, to connect with them, you know, so we could connect in those spaces. But it was, it was a lot to see, to see that we, we have so far to go. And it's something that when I see the homeless community, I see the things that they need our problems in America are solvable. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. It's a it's a matter of how many people are actually going to be good humans and solve them. Right, right. So your experience on Skid Row, were there any moments where you were fearful for your safety? Not with the community. Absolutely not. I felt safer yeah. in Skid Row than any other place in L.A. So I think no. that's important for people to hear. Yeah, absolutely you know? not. I felt as far as the people go, I was safe. I was taken care of. I was... L- I was afraid of the cops for sure. I will say that that was a hard one for me because you become a target when you're poor and obviously a person of color. But so that was difficult. Um, but no, I had I had such a peace there. Yeah. Like there was such a oh, it was one of the most beautiful beautiful experiences of my life. Wow. So tell me a typical day. Can you oh tell like, while you were on Skid Row? So were they, was there a typical day? Were they all different? Or like, how would you start it off? Where do you get food? I was panhandling. I was selling cigarettes. I was, I mean, I learned all the things that they did. They showed me the way, you know? Yeah. I was recycling cans at five in the morning. That was difficult. Mm-hmm. Like to have a whole bag. Like, that's what I realized. I had like so many cans, hours and hours. I'm collecting cans. I'm going through trash. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking I'm going to have a nice amount. I'm like, this is about $30. When I get down there, it's like, that'll be $4. Right. And it took me like 10 hours. Yeah. And the worst part was in my head, I was like, wait, what? And then the guy who was doing it with me, he's like, oh, that's not bad today. But like, and he was like really excited. And it was like, you know what I mean? It's like little things like that where it's like, when you think about how much you make per hour or what you do or like how it's like, for me, it was just like, this is mind blowing. Right. And they like, think that be, people, yeah. or they think that like people who are homeless are lazy. They're working harder than anyone. Amen. So, yes. so seeing that, I was like, and he was like grateful. There was just this gratitude, you know, it was just like, I know we spent 10 hours, but we got $4, you know, just the dignity of it. You know, I didn't have to ask anyone for anything because they're not going to give me anything anyway. 
So like that, like there was so many places, so much mind expansion for me through that experience, through gratitude, you know, seeing people who are grateful. I mean, there was a lot of pain, you know, you did see addiction and drug use, even though only 10% of people experiencing homelessness really are addicts. That is so important. 10%. That's, people have such a stereotype stigma that all Mm -hmm. addicts are, to the point where people are like, oh, I don't want to give them money because they might buy drugs. I've always been like, so God bless them. Buy buy drugs with it. Like, you know what I mean? Do whatever you want. Just like help someone else out, you know? It's such a sick thing that we, it's only 10 fucking percent. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So, so to see that, right? Like, and of course, like I was, I mean, I sat with, with heroin addicts in stairwells why they, they did drugs and they didn't do them because they wanted to. They did them because the world had hurt them and no one gave them grace. Right. It's like the people who have addictions that experience homelessness, Mm -hmm. the condition that they're living in is hard to bear. Like Mm -hmm. it's not easy. And a lot of the people aren't mean and angry and malice towards other people. So they inflict pain on themselves or they just try to lead to not create problems for other people. Right. The the drugs are to numb the pain from, Mm -hmm. and it's real pain. Like this isn't things that they're making up. Like the difference is it's like, you know, I mean, I've been around addicts. It, you don't have to be homeless to be addicts. I know very Definitely wealthy not. people yes. who are addicts. So it's like, yes. it's a matter of really having the empathy of what is making you want to leave this plane. Right. Yes. And the mental health system is so broken in so many ways. Yeah. But something that really blew my mind when I was researching a lot of what you've said in the past is a lot of the drugs that these people are on are not street drugs. A lot of them are pharmaceuticals. Can you explain that? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, there's so many traces to like crystal meth and bipolar medicine is the same medicine. Mm -hmm. So it's like you can find traces to prescribed drugs that are the exact same side effects, exact same drugs, street drugs. Yeah. So I don't think people recognize that (laughs) there is no difference. Yeah. And aren't homeless people tested on as far as? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's um, that happened. One of our kids would disappeared for a week and I didn't know where he was. And there was a new drug coming out and they were paying people to run trials. Wow. So, yeah, they're disproportionately targeted because it's like, hey, do you want to make a couple hundred bucks? But we don't know what's going to happen to you. Right. And they're like lab rats. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Sense. That's how like, how do people think these drugs get tested? Wow. So they actively target like homeless areas. Yeah, they go there and set up and recruit people. And we'll give you like a hundred bucks to do God knows what to your system. hmm Wow. So when you were spending your 43 days on Skid Row, where did you shower? Where did you eat? I w- there was a place called the Refresh Spot. Some days we were washing down with the fire hydrant. <laughs> like there's a fire hydrant by our tent. So we were just getting buckets and like wiping down. Yeah. We didn't get to like it wasn't, I wasn't doing like full submerged showers for 43 days. I was literally had a bucket and and just paper towels. I mean, I went to, I wiped down at Target one day. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there were moments where you just want it to be in a clean environment where, you know, it's like, I understood why people who are experiencing homelessness would go to those places to try and clean off, to actually get clean. And did you find that those places doors were open to you or? Absolutely not. Everyone was following me around all the stores it was a different level. Like I'd always felt sometimes that with people, but like being homeless, it was like, as soon as you walked in, 
people were following you. Like you could just see people on, hey, follow that person. What are they doing? So that you can't even look at things without feel like you feel like you're stealing. Right. You just feel like it. You just feel this guilt of like, oh, I probably shouldn't look at anything. Yeah. Like, they're just, assuming you are. Yeah. So it just makes you feel guilty. You know, there was just a lot of like, when you talk about mental health, like we contribute to so much of their pain just daily by how we treat them. Yes. Yes. I love that you say, you know, you're not there to save anyone. You're there to hold space. And yeah. that's so important. Yeah. We don't need to save anyone. Everyone is strong enough to save themselves. But I think that being with someone, you know, showing up for them, giving them the space to save themselves, that's so powerful. Yeah. And you guys celebrate birthdays in a lot mm-hmm. of your programs, right? Can you kind oh, of yeah. explain how that came about? Yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of crazy. All of our initiatives come from like some radical experience I have. Then I'm like emotional and I'm like, we're doing this now. And they're like, okay, we're going to add that to the calendar. There was a woman that we would feed every night for two years at midnight. And we were just talking one night. We would be, I mean, literally when we go out there, like we connect and talk to people for hours. And, and I was asking, I was like, if you could have anything you want in the world, uh, what would it be? Like, if you have one wish. And she said to me, um, for someone to remember my birthday, she's like, you know, she's like to be so close to someone that they remember my birthday and I remember theirs and we celebrate it every year. And when she said that to me, it was just so like mind boggling because you don't know one person, like you're going your life because obviously you're, you're experiencing homelessness. So you're encountering people that are just giving you food, leaving, you're not building relationships and no one will know when it's your birthday. Right. And it's like, we take that for granted. You know, we Mm -hmm. take for granted. Someone knows us to the point where they know when we came into this world, it's like, you might not have dignity in other places, but that meant something to you. Absolutely. And, and when she said that, I, it was really cool. I found out her birthday. It was like four months later. Um, it was like four months later. And I, me and our team, we went to her tent at midnight with cupcakes and candles. Oh, and we oh woke her up and we, you know, celebrated her birthday with her. And she cried and she was like, it was really emotional because she didn't think I would remember that months later. Like as soon as I left, I, we put it in our calendar and we're like, we have to go there that day. And that's when we started, we take people like bowling, we'll take them um, to dinner. Like we always go to dinner. Like we, we pick different restaurants to take them to, we get them, you know, cleaned up for the day and, and, and we celebrate with them. It's so it's, and I love to be a part of it. Like, I feel like it's my birthday because I can see how happy they are. Yes, it's so true. Like, we don't think about things like birthdays, you know, and like what kind of that acknowledgement can do for you. And I think yes. that's what's so cool about, you know, in your book, you talk about like, there, it's not so much about what you do. It's like why you do it and the intention and purpose behind it. Yes. And so much of your mission is driven by giving dignity and human decency to other people, you know, like there is dignity behind giving a meal to someone instead of them having to search through a trash can to find it Mm -hmm. like a meal that was intended for them specifically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Love is in the details, you know, I think that love is in the small spaces for sure. So I'm sure you have a million amazing stories. You know, when Mm -hmm. you do see those hard to process stories, hard to Mm -hmm. stomach, Like, how did you acclimate back into normal life after Skid Row? Like, how do you not take those experiences into your personal life? Well, I I'm in both spaces every single day. So it's like I can go from being 
fortunate enough to be around the most influential people in the world and then also go from there to the person who's on the street and is probably going to die on the street, you know, is going to spend a substantial amount of their life in these spaces. Right. I've had that duality for a very long time. Um, for me, it's a gift. I want to be in both. And I and I feel at home in both of them. Yes, you're right. That juxtaposition is so profound and important, especially in a place like L.A., where there's so much pressure to be to social climb and all this bullshit. It's distractions. None of that contributes to our soul growth. And I don't we're not here for any of those things. We're here for our growth, mm-hmm. for our expansion, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that when we recognize that that expansion comes from the love we put into things, everything. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. God, I'm, I love talking to you so much. Like this is just like <laughs> fascinating to me. So what can you kind of, what can you tell me about the female homeless experience versus the male homeless experience? What are some struggles that we might not know about? Well, I mean, I think that women experiencing homelessness um, don't get the support they need. You know, um, abortions are highly encouraged. And how do they even get those abortions? I mean, like, they just go to the yeah, there's program. I mean, the infrastructure support that. And that's a okay. whole another level of trauma. And there's so yes. much trauma connected to all of it. Right. Like even if you're looking at like 50 percent of foster youth become homeless within six months of turning 18, 70 percent of women in 70 fo- percent of women, young ladies in foster care are pregnant before 21. Wow. And that comes from looking for love. There's so much undoing that has to happen when it comes to our pain, our suffering, the things that are happening. And I think that men and women have different sets of problems. Men aren't protected. It's painful. I I think that it's difficult in both spaces. Sex trafficking, women, there's a lot that happens in that experience. And so I think it's difficult on both ends. I think that even being men, because men are considered a threat and sometimes they're the most timid. So it's like they're fighting a different battle. There's just there's such a different battle on both ends. And women aren't supported in the way that's needed. And especially our youth. It's like people only want to help kids, but it's like these kids turn 18 Mm -hmm. and your life goes by quick and no one ever helps you. And then by the time you're 30, they're like, oh, well, you're an adult now, so you don't deserve help. It's like they never even had the tools. Right. I've met I've met people who are so neglected in the system that are 40, 50 years old and never learned how to read. Wow. So there's so much vibration and energy going on. I didn't realize to the level because you get acclimated after a week in. It's just like normal background noise. Yeah. But when I was walking home. And going and filling up my bathtub, like what I tell you, just the level of, oh, my God, lights. Like you don't think about electricity because as soon as the sun sets, you don't have any lights. Yes. You yes. don't think about those things, you know? Right. One time we almost burnt Tony's tent down because he had a candle in there. Oh, because that was his little yeah. light. And he was so excited to go with us. He didn't blow it out. Oh, and he God. came back and was like, thank God my tent wasn't burned down. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was True. Like Tony. But you don't think about those things. You know, you don't think about the fact that like you really don't have access to things. Right. And so all of that was wild to me, you know, just being able to have what I wanted to eat. So during those 43 days that you spent on Skid Row, what did you eat? 
I was eating for those 43 days. I was eating all the food that was there. I was throwing up constantly, really like throwing up. Wow. From like the inedibleness of the food or yeah. And things being inedible, things being expired. It was just, oh my God, like my stomach hurts thinking about it. Yeah. Just all the small things I recognized, you know, and it was just, it was wild. I slept on the ground on concrete, you know, on a yoga mat. It felt unreal. I can't even imagine. I mean, like the littlest things in the world that you just don't think about are everything to other people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's so, it's so true. But how do most people in your experience become homeless from like, from what you've seen, you know, what addicts are only 10%. Foster care. Yeah. yeah. Foster care. I would say number one, foster kids. Mm-hmm. Number one. Wow. And that's like the most broken system you think? Yeah. I mean, 50% yeah. of foster kids become homeless. That 50% of them become homeless within turning 18 in six months. That's 50%. Wow. That's way more than 50% wow. become homeless. Yes. But 50% become homeless in six months. Right. Right. So there's obviously not programs and care to create independence for, for youth. Yes. Like, in, and there are a lack of foster parents, right? I don't even think it's a lack of foster kids. After they turn 18, the government doesn't help. Right. They're just so left it's on like their own. They're, yeah, and 18 isn't necessarily an adult. Like, to think at 18, you're left on your own with no one because you don't have a family. So right. it's like you're literally left by yourself. And you're a child. Your brain is yes. not fully developed. No. Like, that is so crazy to me. So a lot of people become homeless because they started out with nothing. And the system, it does not help them out. You know, I think living in L.A., we're bombarded with if you don't think homelessness is a problem, like then you haven't left your house in two. You know what I mean? Like it's so prevalent. It's so blatant. And I think it can feel really overwhelming, you know, to think of like, okay, all the systems that need to they're not broken because they were actually created to hurt these people. So what are the ways that, for example, you know, we're all in situations, I'm sure, at times where there's an abundance of leftover food, right? Mm -hmm. And everyone kind of talks about, oh, let's bring this to a shelter. Oh, let's do this. Let's do that. And no one like actually does. What can you do on a micro level to help homeless people? I think you pledge to organizations that are doing the work, like, because I think there's too many people who want to just do something. And it's Mm -hmm. so much more than that. I think that you collaborate and align with people who are already doing the work. People are already masters in that space, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think that that's like, obviously number one, if you want to have water bottles in your car and granola bars, you know, when you see someone, of course, but I think that people need to get behind what people are doing. You know, that's a whole relationship with money that I could spend hours talking about. It's like, yes, if you can buy a $1,500 purse, you should be able to make a check to a, a foundation mm-hmm. that's actually doing that work. Mm-hmm. That's why I love the 10% idea because it's like easy, mindless. You just, you know, pledge 10%. 10%. Yeah. You pay it's, that in taxes. Like Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Well, that's a great place to take a quick break and we'll be right back. So what are the ways, you know, if someone's listening to this and is just like all hopped up and inspired by you, yeah. what are the ways that today, what can we do? You know, obviously we talk about micro gestures, but what are specifically for homeless people and helping lunch on me? What can you do? Well, obviously pledging monthly. Um, and that's the thing. Our pledges start from $10. So you can give $10 to 10000 It's really up to you. 
it's up to you and your own karma, your own soul. If you decide how you want, what kind of giver you want to be, mm -hmm. that's the first way because monthly pledges allow us to scale exactly how much we can do on a consistent basis. Okay. That's important to us because we don't look at just one-time donations, even if they're smaller ones and it's consistent. Mm -hmm. The consistency allows us to be consistent in, in serving hunger. You know, the same people that the 10,000 people we feed are hungry every day. So that's one way, obviously. Um, one thing we ask our volunteers, we ask everyone to give us at least two hours out of the month. Okay. That's it. doesn't matter what it is. If you are good at organizing and you come and help us there, if you're good at newsletters, writing, give your gift, whatever your gift set is. Uh, that's important to me. Okay. If you're a yoga instructor, donate one free class to us. So these are all ways. It's like, I believe in money, food, time, and talent. All of us can do that. And, and when it comes to, to, to pledging, obviously that goes to our food programs, giving your two hours. If you realistically think about it, that's literally 24 hours in a year that you give. That's all we ask for. Because if everyone did that in LA, all of our problems would solve themselves. Yes. The problem is no one's giving even two hours out the month. Right. No, it's and after, so true. You know, so it's like, that's the discipline. You know, if you're really going to show up, you make time for everything you care about. If you care about humanity, if you care about showing up for the community, then you'll figure out two hours. Everyone's busy. That's not an excuse. Yes. Does it drive you just fucking crazy to just hear about how miserable people are and like knowing that if they served in 2% of their life that they would be so much happier? Like, doesn't that drive you insane? Like, you're like, I have yeah. the answer right here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely think it's challenging because I often think if you'd only get out of your own way. Exactly. You know, so I think that a lot of the, the suffering, a lot of we have is self-inflicted through poor choices. And I think it's how we're showing up for the world. And of course it's taxing our soul. It's not natural for us to not give to each other. Right. You know, right. it's an instinct. Yes. So yes, I wish more people would prioritize what's important in life. Mm-hmm. Well, you are such an inspiration to do that. I'm like <laughs> blown you. away by you. What is a topic or concept you think women, either in your industry or just in general, need to talk about more openly? Vulnerability. I think yes. that it's not about the it's not about talking, it's about where it's coming from. I think that what we need to do is normalize our vulnerability. You know, when we speak, I think it needs to come from the harder don't talk at all. Mm, I love that. Yes. That sounds revolutionary to me. Like that sounds brilliant. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a little earlier, this is not as much of a rapid fire question, but what role has forgiveness played in your life? It's actually the last conversation I had with my grandmother. Mm. So it's so funny you say that because the last conversation she had, she didn't have many wishes for me because she allowed me to be who I was. She gave me space to grow and blossom. But the thing that she said to me is forgive everyone. Wow. And I never understood it. Like I understand it now because I've, I've, been faced with challenges to forgive many people. But she said to me, you don't forgive people for them. You forgive people because of your agreement with God. Mm. And she was like, so that your heart can be light. Mm -hmm. And when she said that to me, I understood what she was saying. It's like when Toni Morrison says, you want to fly high, you got to let go of the shit that weighs you down. Yes. And I think that there's weight that comes with not forgiving. Absolutely. They say it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Exactly. Right? Absolutely. It's it's everything. I think that if we can't forgive, we must think that we're flawless. <laughs> like we must think that 
I think all of us have to ask for forgiveness and grace at certain parts in our life. So I think that why we ask, we also should uh, be that. And do you believe that, you know, there can be forgiveness without resolution, meaning like the person doesn't have to stay in your life? Right? Yeah, I think I think the forgiveness is the resolution. Yes. Because it's it's putting it's putting to bed whatever is weighing on you. It's putting yes. the weights down. I don't think that I have to forgive you and have you in my life. I have to release all negative things towards you energetically, mm-hmm. spiritually. I have to move that out of my system. How do you do that? Uh, for me, I don't look at people's, how I've been able to forgive is instead of being so focused on like demonizing them, I try to find their innocence. Mm. So the easiest way for me to forgive someone is to find where they are innocent. Mm-hmm. And it's to look at where their pain comes from or how they got this way. And I think it's an attentiveness to really look at who the person is and why they've done what they've done. Yes. And if you can figure out their innocence in it, then you can forgive anyone. It's so true. It's so true. That's been coming up for me a lot lately is like, we are all just a product of our childhoods in so many ways, you know, mm-hmm. and like seeing people for their inner child and seeing that every single thing we do, good or bad, came from, is structured by a belief system that we adopted early in life, you know? So when you start yeah. to look at people as traumatized and damaged and not healed, like then it's easier to have compassion and forgiveness. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. Forgive everyone. Forget that's okay. That's the motto of this whole episode is forgive everyone because it's true. (laughs) You need to. What's a way in which you're working on yourself these days? Oh, my God. Uh, Balance. Uh, One Mm. of the things I'm doing the most is balancing my life. Naturally, I think a lot of people who are called to do such difficult work, um, it's always at the expense of their own health, their own everything. So I'm giving myself permission to love on me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily just putting me first because I don't, I think I'm too selfless for that, but mm-hmm. saying, you know what, <laughs> you deserve a moment or you deserve peace or, or it's okay to shut down for a second and just recenter, regather before I would just hold so many things, so many plates. And, and I'm definitely giving myself permission in that space. Um, so that I'm not playing checkers, I'm playing chess. Uh-huh. And I'm being so tr- strategic about what I do, how I do it, and where I contribute. And so I'm giving myself permission to not feel like it's my responsibility to save the world. Right. Right. So holding space for yourself, allowing yourself mm-hmm. to crumble when you need to process certain feelings. Oh, my God. Yeah. I have breakdowns all the time. For sure. <laughs> Same. And I need them. I need them because I've learned, like, since the Wii Spa has been closed, yeah. my, the way, the way I, I nurture myself is through my tears. Yeah. I release so much. Yes. Yes. It's so true to let yourself feel those things and they don't last as long when you let yourself really feel them. Yeah. I give myself permission to just be as open as it gets. Did you say, did you say the weed spot isn't open? No, no, no. Wee spa. Wee <laughs> the spa. wee spa. That's what I thought. But I was like, you said no, weed no, no. spot. That works too. No. I, I'm like, wee, we could have a conversation spa. about that too. Listen, I love a Korean spa. Oh my God. Oh my God. So, Hell yes. So, so not having that, that's how I've been recharging myself. And it took me a long time to get to that place. I will say 2020 is when it started. Yeah, I bet for a lot of people. It's hard for women, I think, also to 
they we confuse with like be, like being a martyr with like being the most selfless version of ourselves. And yes, you should be the most selfless version, but you l- lose yourself and can get lost in the sauce, you know, by just like not looking, not taking care of yourself ever. Yeah, I think that everything has to be balanced. And I yes. think that you just have to check in with yourself and see if there's anything you can do to, you know, to better fight this fight. Yes. So this is a random question, but what is the most off-brand thing about you? Probably, I think that most people think it's it's interesting when they find out how much I've trained in boxing and martial arts. Oh, really? I think that that's an off-brand thing because it's like, <laughs> you're so love peaceful. without reason, but I could break your neck if I need it to. Yes. <laughs> so, so I think that's a little off-brand. <laughs> yes. a little off-brand, I would say. Can you tell me about Larea's bodega yeah. before we go? Yeah, yeah. So um, our bodega is the first organic 99 cent store. So basically- so I kind of want it to be the goodwill of, of food, yes. but from a vegan space. So it's like, think baby, baby, whole foods, mm-hmm. but everything's $5 and under. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Like the fact that you, I love that you always say that you wouldn't feed people things that you wouldn't eat yourself. Yeah. And that is and so I have very, true. yeah. Like I'm very, very picky on how I eat. That's one space I would say I'm particular. Like I like farm to table foods, pure foods, raw things. Like I'm super big on just healthy food. And I wanted to share that with the community. I'm not going to have a canned food drive. And then I go have this, this luxurious dinner. Like that's crazy to me. It's like, I'm here to share. It's like, this is what these beautiful, wonderful meals look like. Let me share this with you. Let's do this for everyone. Like tomorrow we're doing, um, at a LGBT shelter, we're doing a pop-up dinner tomorrow. Oh, amazing. And out here. And it's like, that's the kind of stuff I love doing. Like I love sharing those experiences. Like it's a blessing to be able to share resources. It's a gift. Yes, like it is I, just, gift. I just don't, I don't think that we're any one person is giving all these things to hoard. Mm-hmm. You're not giving a lot to hoard. You're giving it to distribute, but you're missing your test. It's true. It's true. You're missing your lesson. Yes. So I asked you this a little bit earlier, but what, where can people bring things like food? Like where should people go? We don't take personal leftover food only because, I mean, that's just a whole nother thing. You know, we work with grocery stores, we work with farmers, we work in that space. So I wouldn't, but if you have like water bottles, something that you buy, granolas, you can drop them off at our bodega if you're not. Okay. Oh, wonderful. Okay, Mm -hmm. great. Perfect. Okay. So what's your website, Instagram handle? Where can everyone find all of the things you have going on? There's lunchonme.org. There's lorea.com. There's loreasbodega.com. Our Instagram is obviously loreasbodega, lunchonme. So if you're wondering how to spell Lorea, it's L-A-R-A-Y-I-A, and it'll be in the show notes. We also have Art Culture, which is in our event space studio we have as well. And the proceeds from there go to fund our artist programs. Oh, amazing. So we also have that. So those are all the places you can find us. And where can people buy your book? You can get it. I mean, Target, you can get it. The Last Bookstore. It's pretty much in every retailer. You can get it from our website, from Lorraine's Bodega. You can get it from our bodega, too. We also sell them there. I'm so excited to read it. Like, the excerpts that I've Yay. read are so wonderful. And just, if you're not inspired to buy the book after this interview, then, like, I don't know what to tell you. So, no, it's fun. It's tangible. It's clear. Yes. And, concise, and it's actionable. You know? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. And you walk the walk, you know? Thanks, Phil. <laughs> Thank yes. you very much. Okay, and that's it. You're free. Thank you so much. <laughs> Oof, I know that was a long one, but 
God, was I wrong? Like, did not everything she said just completely, like, make you think totally differently? Like, my jaw was on the floor the whole time I was interviewing her. She just, the way that her mind works, her energy is just so inspiring to me. And I just loved every second of talking to her. Okay, that's it for me this week. I will see you guys back next week. In the meantime, please text me or if you want to leave me a little present by rating or following or leaving a comment on the show page, I would be eternally grateful. But thanks for hanging with me and I'll see you guys next time. Bye.